0: Hey you, as a publisher, I believe that I can help you to go ahead and get the motivation you need to start that book on today. I'm going to talk to you about why you may not be writing your book. Now, let me say this, not only am I a publisher, I'm an author of over 50 books, and not only that, I have a class called Remnant Writers uh, 1.0 and Remnant Writers 2.0, where I have helped countless people, hundreds of people to write and publish their books and so i would love to give you a little bit of revelation on today like i said that may motivate you and help you to understand why you know you have it in your heart and in your head to write a book but what what is it that make you uh constantly push back on um the book why are you procrastinating i'm going to help you to understand why you may be doing that so be sure to like and share this message but before i go into the why I want to talk about the different reasons that people publish books or write books, the different reasons. And it's important for you to identify which one of these people you are. One of them is the person who is pregnant with revelation. This is number one. This is the person who's pregnant with revelation. Now, there are two people that fall in this category. First, there's that one that has revelation because you know they may be pregnant with revelation about one particular topic this person will probably write one book over the course of their entire lives which is good it's fine but that person for example may have let's say it's a female and uh she was married and she ended up going through a divorce and it was a really toxic crazy divorce and uh, now she's remarried and she's been remarried for 24 years and um since she's been remarried, she's learned so much, you know, she's had to go to marriage counseling with her husband and now they have a marriage ministry and uh, now they are out there helping other people to remain married. And so that particular person has a lot of revelation on the topic of marriage. And because they've had to help so many people study so much and because they have experience, a lot of times that person will be pregnant with revelation as it relates to marriage. So people, after talking to them, may say, wow, you should write a book. You should write a book. And that person will sit down one day, or they may sit down one day because not all of them sit down and write, but that person may sit down one day and decide, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and write because they start feeling the burden. And so that's a person who has a one time. And it's not to say that they are always one time or one hit wonders. Um, for the most part, they are, um, sometimes they may write, um, a second book, Um, and maybe again, they may write a third book, but you're really not going to get too many books out of them. I would say 90% of them, I would say 80, 80 to 90% of them will only write one book, which is perfectly fine. The second uh, person who's pregnant with revelation is the revelator, the revelator. This is a person who can pull revelation out of just about anything. And this person has a very unique relationship with God and the windows of heaven are open um as it relates to wisdom over that person's life so that person can go out and see a lizard walking in the middle of a road and pull revelation out of that that person can go out and see a snail get hit by a car and they can pull revelation out of that they can go into the bathroom and flush the toilet and pour revelation out of that. They can start talking about, and I hate to say this, the residue left behind in the toilet or what have you. And they can talk about, you know, sometimes, you know, when you get people out of your life, you got to make sure you clean the residue. You know, sometimes we're so relieved or what have you. And so you don't think to clean, but you need to clean the residue. And so they can pour residue, not residue, but they can pull revelation out of just about anything. And so that's going to be the revelation. revelator. So that is number one is a person who is pregnant with revelation again you have the one hit one and then you also have that one who is just constantly having babies this is the person who has um a very fertile spiritual womb they're very fertile spiritually what have you so these are the people when you're dealing with the revelator just a quick stop most of them are relatively very talkative and a lot of them never take the time out to actually write a book and these are the people you have to be very mindful of what you say. let's say you're going to your mailbox and you're just going out there to get your mail and They happen to live next door to you, and you say, "Hey, how are you? Good morning and they say "Good morning oh it it, it it's a beautiful morning. I can't believe it's seventy five degrees in in December, and you're standing there thinking. I got my coffee on. I'm trying to get back in my house. I'm not trying to stand out here and, you know, and have this long conversation. I know this person, this man is going to stand here for the next 25 minutes talking about the sun, talking about the bees and just about everything. The problem with is, is that person needs to write a book. That's all. He's a revelator. And when you're dealing with a revelator who doesn't know they're revelators, they will typically talk talk your head off. And, you know, I'm not saying to say to him. You should write a book because that's gonna start a whole other conversation. That's gonna last until noon because <laughs> you, when you say, "Oh, you should write a book," he'll say. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I got a prophetic word about that Uh, about three Sundays ago. And my children, they have been, you know, my my son, you know, he's in the military and he kept he came back down here. He was stationed in Afghanistan for like seven years. And I I was so happy to see him. Uh, And he came down here and they're going to sit there and they're going to talk, 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 talk. And so what you have to do with them is say, hey, I'm sorry. I love to keep, you know, having a conversation with you. But I got my coffee on. And I have to go stop my machine or what have you. So you have to find some type of excuse to excuse yourself from a person like that. That is the revelator. Okay, that's number one is people that are pregnant with revelation. Number two is not so favorable. Um, And I'm going to stop and say this. As a publisher, most of the people who publish books are women. The majority, but I won't say the large majority. I will say the majority. I will say it's 60-40. 60% of the people or 65% of the people who publish books um, through my company, and I've worked with hundreds of of authors, uh, but 65% of the people who have published books through my company are women. I will say 35 to 40% are men. And I've worked with enough women and enough men to state this as a fact. When it comes to men, men typically write books for one of two reasons. A man will write a book because he is pregnant with revelation. Um, He has, you know, something that he wants to write about, or he has been given the instruction to do so. Maybe somebody motivated him. They say, brother, you should go write a book or what have you. Men are not competitive for the most part. Now, it isn't to say that men won't write a book because they're competitive, because there are some relatively emotional men out there but you don't see them as uh commonly men typically write because they have something they want to talk about they have something they want to write about women on the other hand a large majority of women and when i say this i have to be mindful because you have a lot of times some women that get triggered and they don't understand that hey you're actually these are inexperienced women who try to tell you about what you you've experienced with women but There are statistics that actually prove what I'm about to say. As a matter of fact, my book, I've written over 50 books. One of my books, and I'm trying to see the name of it. I think it's called Christian and Entrepreneur. And there are two parts to that book. And I think it's the green and green and orange one. So Christian and Entrepreneur. I did a census or a survey. And I asked a lot of people who were business owners, why they started their businesses, you know, what motivated them and the large majority of women were motivated by other women. As a matter of fact, I pulled that up online. I pulled up that an article online that was showing the stats. And this was some years ago that said that the majority of women uh, do things because other women did it first. So women are inspired by other women and there's nothing wrong with inspiration. And then sometimes women do things out of competition. Women do things out of competition. And you can tell the difference between the one who's inspired versus the one who's competing. The one who's inspired typically is pregnant with revelation. That particular woman is going to sit back and she's going to write and she's going to write a pretty good book because she has some revelation. I won't necessarily say she's pregnant with revelation, but she knows where to get it. She has wisdom. She has knowledge. She has understanding about a subject or more than one subject. And so going around other people, she got inspired by another female or other women who were writing because then she realized. And for the most part, women, a lot of times will look at a female and say, well, if a woman, okay, let me say it this way. If a woman deems you to be smarter than her and you've written a book that doesn't motivate her because she thinks that it's easy for you because she believes you're smarter than her. But if a woman comes in contact with a woman she feels is inferior to her in the area of intellect or even on her level a lot of times that can inspire her to write because then she says well if you can do it I know I can do it does that make sense if she will say in her mind if she can write a book I know I can write a book if she can do it then I know I can do it what have you so that's typically what motivates women now the woman who's inspired again The book is going to be an easy read. It's going to have revelation in it. It's going to have knowledge in it. It's going to be something that you're going to enjoy reading. The competitive woman, on the other hand, the book won't make sense. The competitive woman, you will tell, um, because the book in many cases won't make sense. It will be relatively thin because she will struggle to pull out knowledge. And for the most part, the competitive woman is stealing somebody's idea. So competitive, competitive woman. A lot of times, you know, they see somebody that has written a book or what have you, and rather than say, hey, sis, congratulations, I'm really proud of you, um, I'm really excited for you, they decide, no, I'm just going to go, and, you know, they'll kind of keep quiet. Let's say in a church, you know, they say, hey, such," uh, let's say Jane Doe just published her book, and, you know, we congratulate Jane Doe. Well, if you have Mary Jane, and I hate to say that name because I think it means marijuana, okay, Mary Doe, we'll say Mary Doe. But if you have Mary, though, that's not related to Jane, Doe, but Mary, though, sitting in a congregation who wrestles with competition, jealousy, envy, insecurity. A lot of the times she will look at Jane, though, and she won't celebrate her. You know, everybody's clapping their hands. She won't clap. And if she does, it's going to be a light clap. You're going to see it in her face or what have you. So she may go home and say, I'm going to write a book, too. Because if she can write it, I'm going to write one, too. And so she'll sit there and write a book. But here's the thing about writing a book, especially a Christian book. You need the revelation of God. And a lot of times people try to get God to partner with them and he won't, you know, because he sees why they're writing the book. It's not that they are sitting there writing a the book to give him glory or to help other people. They're writing the book because they want glory themselves. They want people to look at them and say, oh, you are smart. And so. I'll tell you this story. I remember, and I've had this happen multiple times. You know, I like I said, I've worked with hundreds of authors, and I've had this happen multiple times. I remember this one particular case where this lady had written a book, and she was one of those people. She sent the book over to me um, for editing. And as I'm trying to edit the book, the book was horribly written. It was so horrible, it was a nightmare. And I'm just looking at the book and I'm like, oh my goodness. I hate I took this order. I wish I had just rejected this order. And, you know, I made some adjustments to my publishing company since then because I was like, I can't this kind of stuff is um, problematic. So I'm looking at the book and it's just filled. It's a hard edit. What we call in the editing world, a hard edit. It's a hard edit to the point where it's really not even you can't even say it's a book because every sentence has to be rewritten that's how bad it you know basically the person needs a ghostwriter the person the book doesn't make sense and i'm as an editor i know some people will say well just correct the misspelled words and put the commas and stuff like that where they should be no it doesn't make sense no matter what you do the book just doesn't make sense and if you put it out there like that people are going to give that person a negative review and they're going to blame you as a publisher They'll sit back and say, especially as an editor, they'll say, oh, you didn't edit my book. And you're like, I did. Your book was just written horribly. (laughs) You were too busy because what people have a tendency to do when they're competing is they try to use words that they don't understand. That It's a major issue. They use words or they try to sound intelligent. And it's frustrating because they will sit back and they keep putting all of these what we call big words. They put all of these extravagant words, all these big words together into one sentence. And it just doesn't. And it turns out they'll turn a sentence into a paragraph and their attempts to sound intelligent. And sometimes these are intelligent people that do this, but they will put all of this stuff together and it doesn't make sense. And it's relatively frustrating because you're having to try to dissect that to make sense out of it. You you know, you're not just editing, but you have become a translator, an interpreter of sorts. And so when you when I was working with this woman, um, I looked at her book and I genuinely said I can't. I, I genuinely said I cannot do this. Um, somebody else got to get this book. This book will take me for the rest of my life, I feel like, to to finish editing it i i didn't charge her the proper amount i should have charged this lady in all our honesty i should have charged her no less than about ten thousand dollars that's how bad that book was written i should have charged her about ten thousand dollars and i think i had charged her just a few hundred dollars or what have you and then i reached out to a friend of mine at the time and i said hey you want to make some money and i knew she was unemployed i was like hey i can give you this much money if you want to because i remember she was talking about she needed some money or what have you and i said hey how about this i can, you know I got a hard edit and I, you know, I let her look at the book first and what have you. And I was like, I don't want you to feel like I'm robbing you. And if I'm thinking right, I think I gave her 100% of the money the lady gave me. Um, But I sent it over to her. She said, yeah, of course I can do it. I can do it. And the next day she called me. She was like, I don't know if I can do this. This, this, this is so bad. This is so, so, so bad. Um, So long story short, um, our saving grace was i was able she sent it back to me and she said she'd edit it. and when I, she sent it back to me she hadn't edited that book you know um she called herself doing an edit on it but she didn't do it she got into a few pages she probably got 10 pages into that book and said that's it and then from that point on she literally i could tell she just scrolled and she'll scroll past a few pages and then she'll correct something here and there uh, but it needed a hard editor what have you so i knew not to hire her anymore or what have you Um, so I had to go back and, and, and do that edit myself. And the thing was what, what my saving grace was the lady had plagiarized a lot of material and the way that I was able to tell that it's plagiarized and the way I'm always able to tell when something is plagiarized is because she wrote so horribly. It was so, it was so horribly. But then when I got to certain paragraphs, it was written like it had been written by a college professor so i go from having to strike out every other word to being able to read entire sentences and paragraphs without having to strike anything out and i realize, oh this is yeah this is this is plagiarized so i uh did a plagiarism check on it and sure enough i found the sources of it what have you and i was able to send it back to her and say hey this is plagiarized content i can't publish this we can get sued for this or what have you and that was that so her reason was competition she was competing with somebody she saw somebody else that had written a book and she decided i want to write a book or uh i can tell you about number three is the fame chaser the fame chaser now there are many types of fame chasers, or many reasons people chase fame and glory and the main reason people chase fame and glory is rejection is rejection it's because they've been hurt they've been discounted they've been rejected they've been um persecuted. They went through some things over the course of their lives. They feel like they're good people. They feel like if people would have given them a chance, they would, would have proven themselves to be a good friend. Nevertheless, they have um, consistently been rejected by people. And so they feel like either their success will open doors to those people who will finally start paying attention to them, or their success will give them the platform to kind of stick their tongue out at those people and say, look at you, look at me now. You rejected me. You didn't even try to get to know me, but look at me, I'm successful or what have you. And the goal isn't to get the people to finally hang with them because by this time, they're already dealing with the root of bitterness. Um, the goal for them for the most part is to just mock those people and to make those people want to hang out with them. That they're, they're wanting to turn the tables because they know that most people are driven um by the need to be close to powerful and wealthy people so they they work pretty hard to become powerful and wealthy people um and of course you know you have the ones who chase fame and glory uh because they've been rejected by men you know um you have plenty of women who have been dumped and what have you and they feel like hey I want to make this dude re- regret what he did to me some of them um uh, because their parents their parents rejected them they want to get up and say look at me now mommy you what you said um This about me. You said I'd never be anything. You said I was just like my daddy. Daddy, look at me now. You didn't want to be a part of my life. I think a lot of people envied um, so many celebrity stories. I think um, particularly I think of Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. And I don't know if it was true because I remember seeing it. It's been many, 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 many years ago, many moons ago. I remember seeing it on a a like one of the inquiries, one of those tabloid things. what have you. So you don't know if that's true. But I remember um, seeing a story about, and I remember buying that particular tabloid. I don't remember if it was in the Enquirer or if it's Star or what have you. But the story was that Shaquille O'Neal's father had, was living in a rooming home. And I think I saw it online as well, but I'm not sure. You can look it up and see if it's true. But that his dad was living in a rooming home, not a nursing home, but a rooming home. And if you don't know what a rooming home is, it is a low-income Places like you know people renting out rooms in their house so the person and they rent just a room in a house or what have you and it's typically several people live in there and they're homeless for the most part you know living there so you're going to have some insatiable characters that typically move into room and homes not all the time but you will have some pretty insatiable characters that move into those type of residences uh but you have what was i talking about you have some people, you have those type of people that move into those residences. I don't even remember what I was talking about. That's crazy. That's crazy. But you have different types of people who publish their books for many, many reasons. Um, again, you have the female that feels like, I want to get at this guy for leaving me. Um, and then you have the ones who have those parents. Um, Their parents have uh, neglected them, rejected them, or have you. And they're trying to punish their parents. They're trying to say, mom, look at me, dad, look at me. If you were uh present in my life, you know, this could have been yours. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I remember I was trying to get there. But Shaquille O'Neal, you're probably screaming at this like Shaquille O'Neal, girl, Shaquille O'Neal. All right. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, his dad allegedly was living in a room in a house. And so if you don't know his story, his dad was not present in his life. His dad abandoned him. When he was a child and his mom remarried and his stepdad uh, raised him and his stepdad, you know, was very good toward him, raised him like he was his own son and what have you. And Shaquille O'Neal has always shown a great deal of gratitude toward his stepdad, even though his stepdad has, you know, insisted on that. He don't do anything for him. You know, not you know, he's proven that, hey, I'm not after your money. I'm just honored or what have you. But Shaquille O'Neal has done about um, from what I know, from what I think. He bought his parents a house, his mom and his stepdad or what have you. And that's who he called his dad. But his dad, and this was star or inquire or allegedly, um, but his dad had done an interview or allegedly done an interview. I had to be mindful of what I say because I don't want no lawsuits. But his dad had done an interview or allegedly done an interview where he was talking about how his son was living it up and he was living in a Roman house and um, he was really upset about that because, you know, he tried to reach out to his son and Shaquille didn't want to have anything to do with him or what have you. And so a lot of people look at that story and they desire it, you know, because right now you have a lot of people who had children and the fathers were absent from the children's lives. And a lot of children actually desire it because they feel like, well, you know, their dads are still on this side of eternity. And they, they feel like, well, if I'm successful, if I'm if I'm rich then you know it'll show on the news and you know my dad the news will eventually reach him and when it reaches him he's going to want to reach out to me and that will give me closure because it gives me the opportunity to voice you know what I felt to be able to you know to even even if not if I don't say anything to him I can say it to the tabloids or I can say it to the news I can say it to the media it gives me an opportunity to finally say uh what I felt and Hopes that he'll hear it and not only hear it, that he will feel what he made me feel. So rejection is a large reason why people write books. And I'm going to tell you something. My experience with people when it comes to a person writing a book because of rejection is that they can be relatively horrible. You know, they can be horrible uh, because they put so much effort into controlling the process that they... One thing about it is typically, and I won't say 100% of the time, a lot of times they need a hard edit because they're not they're not necessarily pulling revelation. You know, sometimes they are. Some of them have knowledge. Some of them do pretty good in writing books. But a lot of times they can need a hard edit. And here's my experience with people who need a hard edit. Typically, you know, a lot of times people who are doing that they're doing it to compete. They're doing it because they are trying to pacify a void or what have you. But they'll sit back and You know, me and another editor, I've talked to editors, many editors, and we've kind of laughed about this because this is a dynamic that's universal uh, when it comes to editing, is that people get offended when you edit their books. Like they hire you, genuinely hire you to edit their books and they punish you for doing a good job by getting upset with you because you actually edited the book. And so a lot of times when people want their books edited, they're kind of thinking that you're just gonna put a comma here, find a misspelled word here, And that's it. But when you actually do some editing, some extensive editing, uh, people can get relatively frustrated, offended or what have you. Um, But a lot of times what people do is once I send back a hard edit. One of the things you have to uh, be mindful of now, first and foremost, my publishing company, we use two editors. So I typically do the first round of edits. And once I'm done, I send the book back to the author so the author can accept or reject whatever changes. I also send the author a clean copy so they can use a clean copy should they choose to. But I also send the author, well, no, that's it. I send them a note, you know, a note helping them to understand what they're going to see. And the note is an attempt to keep them from getting frustrated. And it's crazy because, you know, I, a lot of times I think you you're This is good. If, if I get an editor and they butcher my book, I'm actually very happy because it shows that the editor did their job. And I know somebody's going to argue, I don't like my stuff rearranged either. Just leave my stuff as it is. Well, that depends. You know, I'm not saying that an editor should go and change content or change your voice or anything like that. I am saying if it doesn't make sense, an editor, you should want an editor to make it make sense for you. Otherwise, you'll end up with negative reviews. You'll end up, you know, people saying this was a hard to read book. You will end up your sales will be down. So editors uh, help your book. Um, So one of the things I talked about this with other editors, and we talked about the fact that what people have a tendency to do when they need a hard edit is first and foremost, they get get offended when you tell them they need a hard edit, you know, (laughs) because they didn't put all the effort into writing. They're not necessarily. Um. I will not will say they don't have a great command of the English language and that's not a condescending remark. It's a true remark. They don't have a great command of the English language. Or a lot of times people have gotten entangled in the culture of slang um, because that's normal. And I, when I say slang, I'm not just talking about Ebonics. I'm talking about. Um, text language languages and stuff like that. People are actually addicted to those words. And so people are so used to making shortcuts and they don't spell U-Y-O-U. So they literally will put a U in the book. Uh, a lot of people will put LOL in their books or they'll put S-M-H, shaking my head. And you have to take that stuff out and you know, let them know you can't do that. That's not for your book. But people are accustomed to that. So when you send a book back to them and with a heart edit, my recommendation is go with a clean copy. Just read it. Proofread the clean copy. Because if you go with a hard edit, if you go with the edited copy, you have to literally manually go through there and accept or reject every change. Like it and it will take you a long, long time. It will take because you got to read it and it's it's gonna take forever. So my recommendation is use the clean copy, proofread it, look at it, see if you like how it flows. Um, It's still going to flow the way you wrote it. It's just going to be some things that make uh, it flow a little bit better or what have you. So read that. But the thing is, when it comes to a hard edit, guaranteed, this is why you need two editors. This is why I provide two editors. Guaranteed, I have overlooked some errors because it's the book is so poorly written that it's hard to catch everything. And so typically I'll catch in the first round, I'll catch 90 percent, maybe 95 percent. Um, of the errors, ninety to ninety-five percent of the errors. So that means in in a two hundred page book, I may catch, let's say, twenty-five thousand errors in that book. You know, I, I can catch a, you know, quite a bit of errors. I won't say twenty-five thousand, but a lot, many many errors. And I may miss seven. I may miss seven, but I don't trip on that. I don't go back and proofread it after that because. It's going to go to the second editor. The second editor is going to uh, catch what I missed. And whatever the second editor do- doesn't catch, I'll catch because I'm going to do a, a final proofread once it's over with. But before I send it to the second editor, I always send it to the author. So the author can accept or reject the rejected changes or they can use a clean copy, which is what I recommend that they do. And what authors typically do is as soon as they get the book back, the first thing they experience is offense. You know, they get it back and they open it up and they see all those checks and cuts and they see the note from me saying, hi, sorry, this was a hard edit. And, you know, sometimes I have been the queen of misdiagnosing books, telling people they only need a copy edit when they need a hard edit. And here's a blessing in that. If I tell you, you need a copy edit when you really need a hard edit, and I only charge you for a copy edit. I don't come back and charge you for the hard edit. I just take the hit because that's my bad, because I have to be, you know, realistic, you know, knowing that um, there is a huge possibility. Had I quoted you for a hard edit, you would have probably not went with me. So I have to be fair about it. I told you a uh, copy edit or what have you, because I didn't proofread it the, the way I should have. I didn't go through the pages like I should have. Um, I've come up with a new system. Now, if I'm reading a book and I believe it needs a copy edit, it needs a hard edit, you know, so I'll go ahead and charge somebody for a hard edit. And if I happen to be wrong. I'll just refund them the difference, and I am an integral person. So this is what I was talking about. What happens with people is the minute you send them the hard edit book back, and they send it back, or what have you, you know, sometimes they'll use the hard one, and I'm just like that's the silliest thing. Where they'll accept those, typically the more controlling ones, um, or then you'll have some people that go ahead and use the the uh, clean copy. Um, most people, I would say the controlling ones, typically they'll try to use the hard, the the, the difficult one. And then they will send it back. Now, I haven't fought, you know, followed instruction expecting me to accept the changes. And I send it back to them, and I say, no, ma'am, you have to accept the changes. Um, you have to accept or reject the changes in the book. You have to send me back a clean file or either that or you can use the clean copy. And they typically in majority of cases, they'll humble themselves just enough to use the clean copy. They'll say, all right, I've made some adjustments in it, but. Let's just go ahead and go with the clean copy. But what they always do, too, is they'll say, I found mistakes in the book. And, they'll, and that is not coming from a place of, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure my book is good. It's coming from a place of offense. Because they're saying, you talking about me and all this stuff, how I messed the book up. And you supposed to be an editor and you missed like seven mistakes. And I'm sitting there looking and I'm like, this is common because at the end of the day, if I really, if I edit somebody's book who is who needs a proofread or just a standard copy edit, they don't do that. They don't do that, even though I will overlook things in their book as well, because, you know, I'm going to catch 90 to 95 percent and in their books. I'll probably catch up to 98 percent. But the second editor, I, you know, that's the thing. I don't trip on it because I know I got a second editor that's going to go through it. And he is pretty uh, substantial, you know? And so, uh, I, I'm not, I don't trip on it. People who need a proofread, they're so happy because I've emailed them and I'm like, great book. Um, so, yeah, here's your book back and it's just a few changes and what have you. And for those of you who you say, well, you must have a condescending email. No, I actually it's the same email I send to everybody. You know, I just may say, hey, yours needed a proofread. And it's the same copy and pasted email. But people who get a hard edit typically get offended and, you know, they go straight into accusations. Somebody who get a copy edit, they don't do that. Somebody who gets a a proofread, they don't do that. It's only the people who get a hard edit. That, and I'm thinking to myself, half those times, like, you sat here and wrote that book and you didn't have a command of the English language. And now I've just cleaned out thousands of errors in your book. And now you all of a sudden got a keen eye. <laughs> you all of a sudden. So, of course, I, I you know, I explained to the person, hey, uh, not a problem. It's going to go to the second editor. Second editor is going to look it over and he'll catch whatever I missed. And uh, once he sent it back, I'll send it back to you. And then uh, once it's done, I'm still going to do another proofread because I have a tendency. I am. That's just me. I'm going to do another proofread of it. So you're good or what have you. And from that point on, I can I can sense a shift in our working relationship because they are offended by the edit. And that is so frustrating. I can bring editors on here and they will tell you people. I've I, I, I yet to understand it, but people get offended with the edit. Uh, but a lot of times you have people who are writing from a place of rejection and they can be very hard to work with. Because when I say they want a level of perfection, that's unattainable. They won't. And what don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we don't do excellence because I am an excellent worker to the core. I believe in everything needs to look pristine. It should look celebrity. I, I teach that. I preach that. I live that. But when I say a level of perfection, I'm talking about unattainable, meaning you can have a flawless book cover that they get. I'm talking about book cover can be immaculate. The book file could be amazing. Formatted, re- formatting looks great but they will still comb it. You send it back to them and they can't find a mistake and they will hold it for days and weeks on end because they are literally combing the book. They are combing it with a lice comb, trying to find something because in their minds and the reason that drives people to do this in their minds, they believe that, well, I'm going to be on television and I'm going to, this book is going to put me on the map and it's going to make me rich and so this book is gonna do some amazing things. And so, yeah, I need this thing. I need this thing to really work. So th- they're putting all of their eggs and their hope in that book. And you can always tell when you come in contact with a person because, like I said, they will all of a sudden and they don't comb it while they write it. This is the craziest part. They don't comb it while they write it. They don't comb it before they send it to the editor. They comb it right when They, they typically wait. Right when you're at the edge of or right at the edge of of getting ready to publish it and they start getting scared, they start getting fearful and they start delaying the process and they start combing through the process and they start sitting there and they're just like, uh, OK, wait a minute. I'm just I'm, I'm just I'm just looking at some stuff. I'm, 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 I'm going to get back to you. OK, could, could you just just wait a minute? Just wait a minute. Um, yeah. So why? Why does this page? Ma'am, that's formatting. But why is formatting? You're just going to have to trust me. And so they question just about everything. When you when you come in contact with people, my standard publishing client who's not necessarily dealing with that, the revelator, the person pregnant with revelation, the person who has a reason to write, they typically don't do that. They're not controlling. They're not dominating. They're not they're not emotional They they just give you the book and they let you do your job. But when you're dealing with people who have other things going on in their hearts, you know, what have you, they, a lot of times, like I said, it can be the fame person, the person who believes, Hey, this book is it's, it's about to put me on a map. You know, this book is about to put me out here. And so I need this thing to be pristine. And so for them, they not just want a publisher, but they don't, they want a personal agent. And um, they try to turn their publisher into their personal agent and they will comb the crap out of a book and they will sit there. And when you, Flip to, you know, when it comes to formatting, rather than letting you do your job, they question you like crazy. And they're working with them takes two times as much time or sometimes three times as much time as working with a standard person. Because the standard person, they're they're saying that they want their stuff done in excellence. They're excited. They got revelation. And they're going to be like, hey, this looks great. You know, this, oh my gosh. And they're like, oh girl, this is so wonderful. And I'm not talking about that fake just say that to get it over with. I'm talking about, no, we do excellent work. And people, you know, they're appreciative of they said, Man, I'm sitting at my computer crying right now, looking at this cover. I'm crying right now, looking at this formatting. I'm crying right now. But then when you have the other person it, 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 stir, it serves to prove that you cannot satisfy everybody because they will still sit there in front of a masterpiece and the book be looking good on the inside and the outside. And yet they cannot force themselves. They can't bring themselves to hit publish. I've had cases where I've had to email people for weeks and say, Hey, I'm still waiting on your book file. I sent it to you a couple of weeks ago. I haven't heard back from you. Hello. How are you? Not even weeks, months. Because they were so they were dealing so much with the spirit of perfection that they sat there and they were just dealing with fear. They could not release it. And I've had cases where I've had to threaten people with, hey, I'm going to have to charge you extra money. And I know you may say, well, Tiffany, why don't you just let them be, you know, let them come back and submit the book to you whenever they feel they're ready. No. Let me tell you why. Whenever people do that, somehow they have I call it demonic timing. Typically. What they do is they resurface when you're buried under work. They typically resurface. So they'll go weeks and months with no contact. You don't know weeks and months with no contact. And all of a sudden they will reemerge, send you their stuff. And then they'll be like, can we have this done before the week is over with? Now, you're already about to pull every all of your edges out. You're there about to pull your hair out by string by string. You're already frustrated. You're already tired. You're already depressed and overwhelmed. I won't say depressed, but overwhelmed. And now they're trying to add this added burden to you. And you have to sit back and contact them and say, ma'am, I'm not going to be able to have this out this week because I have a lot of other things um, to do. Well, I would think since I place the order back in February, I should be at the top of the list. No, the thing is, I can't hold every other client up and say, shh, as soon as she comes. No, what I have to do is now I have given them a deadline because I haven't heard from you. I've written you. You haven't communicated with me. You haven't said anything to me. So, yes, I told them I should have them out by March 1st. So guess what? I got to have them out by March 1st. I got to make sure their stuff is done by March 1st. I can't stop and delay them just because... Now you just had a thought that said, hey, let's go ahead. I can tell you when people do that 99.99% of the time, they always wait to the most inconvenient moments. And I'm not saying that they know that is inconvenient. I just say it's demonic. I Honestly, because they're already showing that they're bound. But I just think a lot of cases it is truly demonic because when you see how perfect. Their timing is, is typically when you sit there and say, I can't take, I got too much on my plate. I can't, and you haven't heard from them in two months. You, when you sit there and say, man, this is too much. You, I, I I don't know what to do. I, I can't. Oh my goodness. That's when you'll get an email from them. That's when you'll get an email from them. They'll say, hey, finally ready to push forward. And you have to tell them, yeah, no, I got to push you off another two weeks. I got to push you off another two weeks. And of course they get emotional and they're like, Oh, I really need this because I got this event coming up and I really need this to, to to be done before the event. I'm sorry. I've been writing you and emailing you and they never will answer as to why. And I'm not saying that they need to. But, you know, they just keep on saying, is there a way, uh, it, you know, is, is there any way that you can get anybody else to kind of hold off because I'm really I really need this done. And so this is the reason why I don't allow people uh, to do that. As a matter of fact, Um, my publishing company, I've been updating the website and that's one of the things I'm going to be adding to the contract is a time limit because I've had an overabundance of customers like that. I won't say that they are the majority of my customers, but I will say 50% have given me some type of problem like that. 50% of my clients have given me some type of problem like that. And when I say 50%, I would say of those 50%, 98% of them were women have given me trouble like that, where it's like, OK, can we just get this done? And, you know, like I said, they'll go through the book and all of a sudden become super analytical. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to want your book done in excellence. Comb your book, do that. But sometimes they find mistakes. And the problem that I had is that most of the times they're doing it from a place of offense, a per- place of perfection. They're not doing it from a healthy place. And not only are they not doing it from a healthy place, by this time, they're offended. They're motivated by offense. You know, by this time, because you edit in their books, they're, they're motivated by offense. And by this time, and I'm not saying 100% of the time this is the case, because I've had cases where people just had the spirit of perfection on them. And that is a spirit. That is an unclean spirit. And there are some people who are excellent, but excellence don't show up after. the fact, excellence show up when you're writing a book, you know, Uh, you cannot call yourself an excellence worker and you write a book and you're not putting your effort into cleaning it up or even having the, the presence of mind and say, let me clean this up before I get an editor. No, you have people that will usually will use I as in reference to self I and use that in small cases and send it over to and know that that's wrong. They will have misspelled words. I'm talking about the underlying come under the word to let them know that it's misspelled. And they will still send it over to an editor. Still send it over to an editor because they figure that's not my job. That's the editor's job. But then I have to charge them for a hard edit. And then they get hurt. (laughs) And they get their feelings hurt when I tell them, oh, your price. Okay, yeah, your price is $2,476 or $4,562. $4,500. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Because you didn't put the effort in. And like I said, a lot of times people get offended. Um, I recently worked with a woman and she got offended. I just thought about her, literally. Just thought about her, completely forgot about her. Recently worked with a woman and she got offended right after the edit. Right after the edit. And I'm I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, do, you, do people really understand that when somebody is a good editor, you should stick with them? But, you know, I don't trip on it because I know that they're going to go learn on their own. So... She only paid me for the edit and she you know made it clear that after the edit was done she was going to pay me for the publishing. So I sit there, I go through the edit and and she needed a hard edit. I charged her for a hard edit. She wasn't happy with the price. Um but it is what it is and I let her know, "Hey ma'am, I'm sorry you need a hard edit." And as I was editing her book, all I could think of was I am so glad that you are a firm sister. Because if you had a took this down to a copy edit with the amount of work needed in this book, I'll fight you. And I, this is me talking to myself. I will fight because I'm like this. It makes it, it was a hard edit. The woman was offended, not just by the price. And I, I can't even say she was offended by the price because at the end of the day she, she didn't have to hire me. She could have went somewhere else. And if she would have got somebody worth their salt, they would have actually charged her a lot more than me. Anybody less than me, I can tell you, they, they weren't going to do any edits. What they were going to do is they were going to just look for misspelled words and add commas here and there. And the book would have still read crappy. So I get the book and he's a hard edit. Like I said, it did. I do the hard edit on the book. No, I accidentally emailed her. I accidentally emailed her and I said to her, uh, well, in the email, I, I copy and paste emails, you know, to my clients. have Because they get the same email. So I forgot I added notes to one particular person's email and I sent it to her and I said, Hey, um, my apologies, this turned out to be a hard edit, but I'm still just charging for a copy edit. So she was like, Hey, what's this about? Cause you charged me for a hard edit. I was like, Oh, my, my sincere apologies. That was to somebody else. Uh, what And I think that could have offended her, you know, cause at that point she's like, well, I feel like I should get charged. No way. Cause I yeah it's a nightmare doing that when you're working a hard edit it's a it's a literal nightmare, so I sat back and I was like um, I apologized to her she was like not a problem, and I f- finally finished editing her book I sent it over to her and I tried to send that little nice note hoping that would we'll soften the blow you know and just use the clean copy and. She wrote me back. I would not be using your publishing company. I was like, okay, thank you. Thank you. And so as a publisher, we do get quite a bit of people who actually get offended with us uh, for 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 editing. And I understand now why a lot of publishers don't edit. They just have external companies that edit the books. They partner with these companies and what have you. They'll have them listed on the site uh, because people genuinely get mad and they'll get so mad to the point where they be like, I don't want to spend my money with you. And that's that. So anyhow, what may be holding you back from publishing your book? I know you've been waiting on this is number one fear. You know what you're afraid of? You're afraid of what people are going to say about you, what people are going to think about you. You're afraid that if you go out and voice your opinion, your beliefs, your thoughts, your convictions, that. Is going to trigger certain people who've already expressed in so many ways, not necessarily verbally, but through their body, uh, through their body language and through their mannerisms and through their choices that they're not fans of yours. And so you're afraid of them. You're afraid of their faces. And this is what the Bible talks about. Don't be afraid of their faces. I challenge you to pray about that. Pray that off of you to stop being afraid of what people are going to say because what you're doing is whenever you get ready to write you may be imagining the people that are going to read your book and you start imagining your haters you start imagining people who are not necessarily fans of yours and you start imagining what they're going to say you start imagining you know how they're going to be all condescending and they're going to talk about you and so consequently because you're imagining that you put writing the book off or you start writing and then those thoughts start coming in because, you know, when you're writing a book, faces do pop up in your mind. And this is the convicting part. As a teacher, as a leader, one of the most frustrating things I have to deal with is that sometimes when I'm writing or sometimes when I'm teaching, you know, somebody's face will pop up in my mind, somebody who's present and active in my life. And it can be frustrating because my first thought is I don't want this person to think I'm talking about them because I've had plenty of cases where people felt like I was talking about them. I've had that happen plenty of times. And, you know, they'll say, oh, you said this. Um, you said, you know, people like there There will be people that listen to this will feel like, oh, she's talking about me because I published my book through her. And it's not the case. I mean, if you were a hard, difficult client with a hard edit, then yes, I grouped you in a category, but I'm not necessarily thinking of you. But the thing about it is people... They get frustrated or what have you. And so consequently, a lot of times I I found it's a spirit that works in people. Honestly, it's a spirit that works in people to control other people where they'll sit back and they'll control what comes out of your mouth by saying, was that about me? Was that about me? You know, I had an old friend who reached out to me some years ago. And I can honestly say I, I genuinely I told her I appreciated her for it. I felt the appreciation going through me. I felt so appreciative of her because um, she reached out to me and she was like, hey, sis, can we talk? She inboxed me and I was like, yeah, sure. She called me and she was like, hey, you posted up something today. Was that about me? And I was thinking, I was like, what did I post? And she told me, I was like, sis, no. You know, and I told her, I said, no, I'm not that type of person. I'm not going to post up passive aggressive messages, you know, for the most part. I'm just going to be, you know, I talk about my experiences and I talk about life, but I don't talk about like I, I would never talk about somebody that I'm in affiliation with. I may say something about I had a client that did this or I had a client that did that. But no, I'm not going to talk about you. And she was like, oh, and I, I told her, I said, you know, what? I really appreciate this because I said, you know, how many people that have, you know, just stopped speaking to me and I didn't know why. And that's one of the hard parts about being a teacher is that people do get frustrated and they start thinking you're talking about them. Like if somebody walks up to you and says, you know, Tiffany, I ain't going to lie. I've been struggling with masturbation or what have you. Now, all of a sudden, that person genuinely believes you cannot speak on masturbation and lust for the next two years. Because the minute you open your mouth and say, "Okay, guys, I'm going to be teaching today about masturbation. And what I found is that a lot of times people literally call me or text me or email me wanting to talk about the very thing I'm planning to go live about. It, go live about. So I've gotten to the place now where I go ahead and tell them before, you know, as soon as I get on the phone with them and they say, hey, girl, want to talk. I've been struggling with masturbation. I said, girl, I was planning on going live on, about that tonight. That's my plan to go live and talk about that tonight. So I go ahead and warn them up, you know, up front so they don't say anything because I don't want. That that conversation now muzzles me that I can't talk about it because I and this is one of the reasons, in all honesty, I don't want a lot of friends. I really don't want a lot of friends. It's because I don't want to be muzzled. I realize that people muzzle other people. I don't want to be muzzled by people's emotions, by people's feelings, by people's insecurities and by their fears. Because genuinely, wholeheartedly, when I teach, I'm not talking about people. But I can tell you that I deal with that constantly where I'll teach something. And in the middle of teaching, I'll immediately think of somebody or when I post something, I meet, I'm like, oh, crap. I hope such and such don't think I'm talking about her. But that's just trauma that I've experienced from people who've had that with me, you know, and because I have a lot of content out there. And they didn't necessarily respond in a healthy way. So consequently, uh, yeah, I just a lot of I just really don't want to get close to people. You know, a lot of times I really don't want to know what's going on in their lives. I really don't want to know because I don't want to feel like I can't preach about it. Another thing that you may be dealing with is the expectation of people. So let's just say you were Kiki in your family, you know, and they always knew Kiki to be a, a fighter. You know, she was with uh this guy for seven years and you know kiki always had that attitude kiki always had this going kiki always had that going and as long as you allow people to people to identify you as kiki instead of whatever your name is as long as you you allow people to identify you by that it's hard for you to get up and do what god wants you to do because you almost in a sense feel like you're betraying them You almost, in a sense, feel like you're betraying them. So number three, because I don't have a whole lot of time. The next one I want to talk about is. You have somebody in your life that's draining. you. I said it. You have somebody in your life that's draining you writing. You've heard me talk about, oh, that's a spirit. That's a demon. And people don't realize that writing is very much spiritual. It is truly. (laughs) And you cannot disconnect it, especially when you're writing a Christian book. You cannot disconnect it. And for me. I've seen so much demonic activity as a teacher. My students, they, I, I, every class I have, they come back and talk about, oh, Miss Tiffany, you know, this happened and that happened. This is why I tell them. I say, hey, y'all make sure you pray before you write. You make sure you pray before you write because they be going through some stuff when they start writing. So the thing about it is you have to be mindful of who you have around you. You have to be mindful of who you're allowing to take your attention and your virtue. So let me explain like this. One of the patterns I saw in my life, and I had to stop that, and I see it in just about anybody's life, life that I mentor, is that the minute they start writing, is that that's when their friends start calling and having a bunch of problems. Oh girl, he left me. Oh girl, he didn't come home last night. Oh girl, oh girl, oh girl. Let me tell you a little bit about virtue that people don't realize. Right now, I'm pouring out virtue right now. It's six o'clock in the morning. I've been pouring out for nearly an hour. I'm pouring, pouring out virtue right here. I'm not going to have a lot of energy to go pour out vir- virtue uh, again. Now, obviously, it's time for me to get my tail in the bed. I haven't been to bed yet, uh, but I'm not going to have the energy or the zeal to want to just jump to something else. No, I'm going to want to go and lay my tail down. And so this is the thing. Whenever you're talking to a person, that person is getting you to tap out what you should have poured in that book. You're pouring it into a person who is not going to receive it. You're pouring it into a person who is like pouring water into a pot with holes in it. Just imagine a water bottle that's spewing the water back out. They're not listening. You're just pouring out your virtue. It's very much spiritual. It is very much spiritual. When you're just pouring out and they're listening and they're like, uh-huh. Yeah, you right. And I'm good. And I tell you, that's what he said. And you pour out. And by the time you get off that phone, you didn't spend three hours on the phone. And this person, you're tired. You're tired. You don't have that much time left. You look at the clock. You realize you got probably about an hour and you got to help the kids. You got to do this. and You got to do that. And then it happens again the next day and the next day until you finally give up on writing. So when you're writing a book, you have to actually take the time out and say, hey, yeah, I'm not going to be talking to anybody right now. Sorry. Hey, sis, I love you Uh, for the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to talk a lot on the phone. It's nothing personal, but I'm working on some projects. And when I say projects, I don't tell people what I'm doing because, yeah, like I said, I'm just not into that because it brings a lot of warfare. Um, I don't sit there and say I'm working on a book, sis. No, I just sit back and say, hey, sis. Well, honestly, I don't even say that nowadays because for the most part, what I do is my phone just lives on silent. My phone lives on silent. I get back around to my phone. I will call people back. Whatever. I'm taking a break. Um, If I'm working on projects, I have it in my head. Get off that phone. When it comes to talking to people, I text them. (laughs) I text them and I'm a talkative person myself. So I will typically text them. You know, I'd be like, hey, or a voice message. Hey, what's up? You good? Or what have you? Because I know that the person will get me on the phone and they'll lock me on the phone talking about whatever. (laughs) And uh, consequently, I'll spend four hours on the phone with them or three hours on the phone with them. And that's time I could have put into my book that that's seven pages of content that could have been written in my book, but it was just thrown out in their ears and they're not going to take it in. This is why the Bible says, don't cast your pearls to swine. And lastly, one of the things that may be holding you back from writing your book is how you see yourself, how you see yourself. You don't see yourself the way that God sees you. You see yourself as inferior, you see yourself as uh, unintelligent, Um, you see yourself as low. And you have to change your view of yourself because it is a disgrace to God uh, whenever he creates a masterpiece, he himself being the master, and the masterpiece decides that she's not or he's not good enough for the world to see. You have to stop thinking that you have to sound like all of these popular pastors and stuff like this. I tell this to my students all the time. Everybody has a target audience. Your voice is going to draw those who are called to you. If you try to mimic somebody else's voice, then you're going to repel not just the people who are called to you, but you're going to repel people, period. You will disgust people um, because people can detect fate. So be you. Don't think that you have to sound so deep and you need some super deep revelation. There are different levels of writers. Get my book, Microscribology. Um, go to Amazon.com, get microscribology. I talk about the different levels of writers. You may be a surface level writer, and a surface level writer actually grab garners more attention than a deep revelatory writer. A deep revelatory writer is going to help more people because most people are subs they are taking content from them and then they're chewing it up and they're giving it to people, they're breaking it down for people. By the time it gets to the surface, um, the people on the surface are able to break it down all the more and feed it to the people on the surface. The people, Most people are surface thinkers. Um, and so once you feed it to the people on the surface, um, you have a grander or a bigger audience than somebody who is on the fifth level. So again, get my book, Microscribology. I believe that that will help you. Anyhow, hopefully this message bless you. God bless you. And I will talk to you soon.